For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel, joining me over Zoom video conference. Elections are set for November 3rd across the state, with likely the biggest one taking place in central Oklahoma. State Senator Stephanie Bice won the runoff against Terry Neese to take on Congresswoman Kendra Horn in the general election. Neva, your thoughts on Senator Bice's win? Well, I think uh, clearly, I mean, it was a major victory for Stephanie Bice in a very hard-fought campaign. I think that uh, when you look at the results, uh, the 3,000 votes that uh, separated them, uh, it is interesting to to look at the breakdown and the fact that Stephanie Bice uh, uh, had about a 4,000 vote margin over Nice in, in Oklahoma County, and then uh, uh on the opposite side, Terry Neese did very well in Pot and Seminole counties. Obviously, less vote, but not enough to uh, not, not enough to close close the margin. I think it's significant overall to the kind of the capstone on the race in that there was a very quick uh, uh, consolidation effort on the part of Terry Neese uh, on election evening, saying that uh, uh, she wanted to not only enthusiastically. Uh, support and endorse uh, Stephanie Bice, but would be actively engaged in uh, uh, in trying to help the campaign. So I think that that consolidation, I think the fact that that really points to Terry Neese, whom among Republicans uh, viewed her as very much a, a, a stalwart Republican uh, uh, longtime activist and candidate, and that that translated that evening to making sure that uh, uh, that Republicans joined ranks in what will be a very hotly contested national race with a probably uh, an unprecedented amount of money spent uh, in the next several weeks. Ryan. Well, you know, first, an impressive victory to Senator Bice. Congratulations to her. That was an incredibly hard fought campaign, as Neva said. I mean, it was it got very negative on both sides. And then you had independent money coming in to you know, nearly the, the tune of, I think, I think almost a million dollars that we know of. Uh, spent in that in that primary and that runoff campaign, which is incredible in its own right, but it's really only a small portion of what we're going to see moving into the November election. And I'm sure that over the next month or so, we're going to have a, a lot to say about that election. But a couple of takeaways that that I see from that Republican primary and the runoff that I think you know may have some consequences even beyond this fifth district congressional race. First is you know the attacks on Senator Bice really focused on her votes to raise taxes. I mean I think that that was the central attack uh, that we saw both from the candidate and from independent groups, and she still won. And so the the message and the takeaway there for for a lot of Republicans in government right now is that you too can raise revenue to fund better government services and still win in a hotly contested race with the most conservative electorate uh, and the most conservative electorate being a Republican runoff. And then the other is that it seemed to be a wash as to whether or not kind of the, the pledges of fealty that we saw from both uh, from both Nice and Bice uh, and their support to President Trump. Um, I don't think that either of them really won or lost votes. I think that it's just a given that the Republican Party in 2020 is the party of Donald Trump, unless you're you know, John Kasich or somebody like that that's actively out running against Donald Trump. Uh, there's a sense that if you're a Republican and you're running for office that you support Donald Trump. So these this contest of who supports Trump the most really doesn't seem to move anything uh, in terms of where the voters are at. Neva, do you well, you know, it's interesting, too. I mean, talking about Club for Growth, I mean, which is mm -hmm. an 
anti-tax, limited government group, spends tens of millions of dollars on elections nationwide. Uh, uh, and in this instance, I think what we saw, they spent uh, somewhere uh, in the vicinity of $900,000 uh, that uh, that we know of. And, I, and your million dollar um, uh, price tag that you said, Ryan, I mean, obviously there were other, you know, other entities that, uh, that kind of weighed in on the special interest, dark money, independent expenditure side. But, but in the last 10 years, I mean, this is the second time club for growth has come in, in a congressional race and, and, and not got to the finish line successfully in 2010, uh, the group back Kevin Calvey, who lost in a runoff to James Langford in the, in the CD five race. So I think these are, I think these are important takeaways. And I think when we look at the upcoming uh, general election, it's going to be fascinating to see how this factors in again. And well, I do want to stay on this subject though, because I want to ask uh, Ryan Neva, who do you, th who do you think uh, now, is it favored now more toward Bice uh, or, or would Nice have had more trouble? Uh, there's a lot of people out there speculating on going against Horn. I mean, we, we, you know, Neva and I are both pros at this and we could, we could make a case for, for Bice or, <laughs> or Nice being the more formidable opponent to, uh, to Kendra Horn in the, in the general election. I, I think that Senator Bice is going to have an easier time trying to shift her campaign uh, to a more mainstream message to Oklahomans. You know, you know, as Neva mentioned, she won Oklahoma County. Um, that's you know that's where the fifth district, and I'm I'm a Seminole County guy, and and I hate to admit it, but Oklahoma County is where this race is going to be won or lost. And you know, her ability to appeal to voters in Oklahoma County, I think, is important. The tough thing for Senator Bice, and this would have been tough for Nice as well, is Oklahoma County may very well vote for Joe Biden for president. And so it's not going to be enough, uh, I think, for the Republican candidate in the fifth district to just simply win every Trump vote uh, the way you know it could have been in you know, 2018. In 2020, I think Stephanie Bice is going to have to win every Trump vote and some Democratic votes. And that's really hard uh, given the, the polarization that we see at the moment. And even right now, uh, CD5 is very, very kind of 50-50, really, between a Absolutely. And, and I think and I think the polls, uh, the polls that uh, uh, that have been out there at least to this point, show it's a it's a dead yeah. heat race, a two point race, three point race, statistical dead heat. I mean, and and uh, Ryan is correct. I mean, when you look at the when you look at the presidential um, uh, impact on this race, the fact that uh, uh, that uh, Biden. Uh, in his uh, in his primary win in Oklahoma, probably a fourth of 25 percent plus of those votes came from Oklahoma County. So, I mean, the fact that we now see this race as a Democratic toss up nationally, the fact that uh, uh, by all accounts, it's going to be, I think, the highest spending uh, race we've seen in Oklahoma. I, I, I saw some numbers earlier this week that said that there was already 13 $0.75 million that had been earmarked by both sides on outside groups. That doesn't account for several million dollars each campaign. Bice and Horn will spend. Uh, and that, I mean, when, when we kind of put that in, in, in comparable terms, when you think back in 2018, all of five media markets statewide for all the gubernatorial candidates combined 
they only spent $12 million uh, <laughs> when we're talking about hitting the airwaves. So, I mean, we have not seen anything like this before. I mean, in terms of the sheer volume, I think that doesn't take into account that we have a U.S. Senate race where you'll have uh, both Inhofe and Broyles. You'll have, you know, Trump and Biden. I mean, you'll have even down ballot in Oklahoma County where we talk about very competitive races at the county level, mm -hmm. the sheriff's race, county commissioner, other courthouse races that typically try to hit the airwaves at the end to have the highest impact with this this number of voters. So it's going to be a very, very uh, uh, hard-hitting slugfest at the end. I think it's going to, you know, unless something, and something breaks unusual, it's going to come down to the wire and be a very close race from top to bottom in Oklahoma County uh, and in CD5. Yeah, I actually saw a yard sign for a sheriff's race, and I thought, well, I never see that ever. So... Um, meanwhile, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is endorsing is endorsing Congresswoman Horn in her reelection bid. The, the move isn't sitting well from the state chamber, which sent a letter to its U.S. counterpart opposing the endorsement. Ryan, it seems there's some disagreement between local and national business leaders here. Well, I, I think the, the national folks, uh, you know, see the writing on the wall here. I mean, politically, I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons for this, both as a matter of policy and as a matter of politics. Politically, you've got an incumbent. Uh, member of Congress with over four million in the bank, uh, an evolving electorate in the fifth district that we just mentioned that could swing for Joe Biden, and then no real vulnerabilities, no real political vulnerabilities other than the generic ones uh, against Kinder Horn. And while it's a tough road to election day, the odds are really in Kinder Horn's favor. I mean, you've got a lot of money, you've got name recognition, you've got incumbency, uh, and so if you're the U U.S. Chamber, you back the winner. Uh, and it's always good to back a winner in a tough race, because if, if you if you do that, you can come back and remind them, hey, I was there for you when times were tough. And then if they if their bet's wrong and Senator Bice wins and becomes the next uh, congresswoman from the fifth district, you know, you you've always got the equivalent of roses and box chocolates with fundraisers and <laughs> fundraisers and contributions and probably an endorsement for her in 2022. So, I mean, they'll, they'll make that up. Uh, but I think that it's the smart move. And then from a policy standpoint, Congresswoman Horn has really amassed a voting record that, um, you know, and I, I support Congresswoman Horn 100%. Uh, she's a good friend of mine and, and I support her candidacy, but she's made some votes that have upset folks like myself on things like the minimum wage and uh, and uh, and oil exploration and stuff. But those are things that have garnered her favor, favor with the U.S. Chamber. And so from a political standpoint, from a policy standpoint, uh, this is, you know, it just seems like a no-brainer for the U.S. Chamber to do that. And you know, the, the state chamber is, is much more an, an arm of the conservative Republican movement than it is a, an operator in Washington, D.C. Neva. Well, first of all, I mean, the state chamber doesn't endorse in federal elections. So that's not the that's not on the table one way or the other. And when we look at the at the U.S. chamber endorsement, while the, the state chamber made an emphatic uh, attempt to uh, make their case that they should not endorse uh, Congresswoman Horn, they in fact did. But but. The, the, the point I think that's significant in terms of who they're endorsing at the, at the, at the national level is that two dozen uh, of freshman Democrats uh, were endorsed by the, uh, by the U.S. Chamber. So their scorecard, their way that they formulated, basing it on you know, boats that they came up with, uh, 
uh, leadership and bipartisanship, as they described it. I mean, clearly they uh, they have a bent toward uh, this freshman class and trying to uh, be helpful to a number of these folks. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, uh, any of these uh, folks are are all over the board in terms of where their votes are. I mean, you know, while uh, you know while someone might uh, like the fact that uh, that she uh, that uh, uh, she was on one side on an issue, uh, maybe opposing the ban on, on fracking or raising the minimum wage, which she opposed, which would be, uh, which would, which would be points that would be very favorable among uh, many Republicans. I mean, so it's, it's a back and forth. And I think at, at the end of it, it's an endorsement, uh, like all endorsements, you play it hard if you think it, it's it's to your advantage to help in the business community or somewhere where you're trying to uh, to gain votes or support or or fundraising. But it's just one of many. And I think on the flip side, uh, you have Stephanie Bice, who uh, by the uh, uh, has been named a rising star, has uh, received, I believe, the Entrepreneurial Excellence Excellence Award by the state chamber. So, someone who has a solid uh, track record on many of the issues that are business issues and important to uh, business, not, not only business and industry leaders, but to voters across the board in CD five. And, and Congresswoman Horn, in, in a lot of years, you know, a, a, a voting record like she's got right now uh, that has uh, you know, it's against a lot of progressive uh, causes, you know, the, the anti-fracking uh, position that she's taken, uh, the, the vote against minimum wage. You know, in some years that might actually be uh, a, a real hindrance to her. Uh, but and, you know, by depressing the enthusiasm and intensity of the Democratic base, but she doesn't have to worry about that this year. Right. I mean, I think that um, they're, the intensity of the Democratic base, they're going to be there. They recognize an existential threat, an extinction level event of Donald Trump being a re- of, of him being reelected. They're going to be at the polls. And so, you know, she's she's got the benefit of being able to to uh, you know, set a very moderate course as a member of Congress um, and then run on that record. Now, you know, I would, I would, you know, encourage her to move a little bit to the left. I'd love for her to move a little bit to the left. You know, I see these commercials, you know, talking about her as a liberal. And I'm like, I wish, like, I, again, I love Congresswoman Horn. I'm so glad she's my representative in Washington. But man, I wish she was the liberal that these commercials are depicting her to be. Well, well here, here's the thing, too. The state chamber made a good case on this point that she hasn't, uh, Congresswoman Horn has not proven to be a reliable vote for, you know, for constituents' interests. And in particular, when you look at the four times that she voted to limit energy exploration in a state where it's the largest industry, energy, 90,000 votes throughout the state employed by in, in the energy sector. I mean, this is something where you, uh, when you talk about a pro-business record, it is something that people pay attention to, not just the folks in, in, in the energy sector, but the ripple down effect of how it affects all Oklahomans across the board. Three Republican state lawmakers lose their re-election bids for the Senate. Ron Sharp of Shawnee, Larry Boggs of Wilburton, and Paul Scott of Duncan all failed to get enough votes in the GOP primary runoff. Neva, what happened here? Well, I think I think you had some very hard, hard fought races. Uh, they were local races in some in some instances. They turned uh, maybe on one issue with the with the. Uh, Senator Boggs. I mean, in his uh, in his race, I mean, you he was running against a 
uh, very strong avowed abolitionist who made that the whole issue of the campaign. Um, Senator Boggs with 100% pro-life voting record wasn't good enough. Uh, they said that he hadn't done enough. They wanted to, you know, take it to take it to the extreme of what they advocate for from uh, from a legislative perspective. And clearly, that had traction uh, had traction with the voters. I mean, it was a race that uh, uh, the the pro tem uh, Greg Treat uh, had had told. Uh, uh, in, in various uh, published reports had said that he was extremely invested in that particular race, perhaps more so than others. And yet, uh, and yet Hamilton, uh, the opponent, uh, Warren Hamilton, beat him by 222 votes. So I think when you look at the overall takeaway, when you lose four Senate incumbents, Republicans, in both the uh, primary and the runoff, one in the primary, three in the runoff. I mean, uh, it's it's something to uh, it's it's certainly something to take pause and reflect on. And I think for uh, Senate Pro Tem Treat, I mean, he has his own race in the general and by his own admission, uh, he believes that, uh, you know, it's a race that he can't just be dismissive of, uh, uh, as we've talked about, given the changing just the changing landscape uh, in Oklahoma County, where uh, where his district is, so I think I think when you look at each of these, there are you know there are takeaways, but in in the composite view, it is certainly something when you see these these contests that are so highly charged, so much money coming in from the outside, of which we saw uh, particularly in the in the uh, uh, the race with uh, uh, Senator Ron Sharp, who was defeated by Shane Jett. I mean, where you had a half a million dollars or more uh, outside money coming in uh, to influence the election. That's the changing. Uh, I think that's the changing political landscape everybody's trying to adapt to. Ryan, you know, I, I you know a few takeaways here. Totally agree with Neva. A lot of these runoffs become very local, um, right. and it's a turnout game. If you're an incumbent and you find yourself in a runoff, you are in trouble. Uh, if if you haven't secured enough votes to to win outright, and if you're if you're an incumbent, and you've got a primary, you're in trouble, uh, especially in the Republican Party because that's where you're most likely to lose in Oklahoma these days. And then if you end up in a runoff, you're even in bigger trouble. And so um, you know the one exception to the to the turnout, uh, you know, all politics is local rule of of runoffs that that Neva mentioned, I think is the one that involved Senator Ron Sharp. I mean that became that became a, a referendum of the a political referendum on the fight between Epic Charter Schools and Senator Ron Sharp. And, you know, I think Senator Ron Sharp uh, may have lost that race, but I think the, the biggest political loser here is Epic Charter Schools. I mean, I think that their reckless actions uh, have thrown their entire mission into jeopardy. I think they're going to walk into this next legislative session with even more scandals on their coattails and more, more bad taste in the mouth of, of lawmakers of having to deal with this, folks. And that's Right at the time, whenever their numbers of students are exploding because of COVID, uh, and they should really be focusing their attention on the emerging competition from other virtual options like the Oklahoma City Public Schools. I mean, they have a, a virtual option that's happening there. Huge shout out to Miss Godsey, Miss Scribner, my kids' teachers uh, at, at Cleveland Elementary School, and the and the amazing work that that all the teachers and support staff and administrators and parents are doing right now with virtual schooling. But Epic Charter Schools. They've got these other threats out there, and they just they just get cap captivated by these shiny political objects to their own ruin. And uh, you know, I I told Neva Hill, and I think I even offered it to Senator Sharp on the radio at one point. <laughs> he didn't take me up on it. But whenever Epic first started talking about wanting to sue Senator Sharp, 
for his actions as a state senator. I, I wanted to be his lawyer, and my gosh, I wish he would have taken me up on it because I, you know, I could have retired uh, with the judgment that he got against Epic Charter Schools. And I think that um, you know they and they've also embroiled themselves in a possible ethics matter now uh, by sending an email out to all of the parents uh, on their email list basically using electioneering communication, what it seems to be, uh, urging people to vote against Senator Sharp. I mean, as a 501c3 nonprofit, they may have jeopardized their their tax status. I mean, so, uh, and then I guess the final takeaway of all of that, so biggest loser of the the runoffs is Epic Charter Schools, uh, but but Warren Hamilton, uh, you know, keep your eye on, on, there's, you know, you know, if he wins this general election and, and goes on to be a member of the, the state legislature, I mean, it's the it's the next in the, in the long line of, of, of Bill Graves and Sally Kern and uh, Joseph Silk. And, and now and every year they seem to they seem to get more and more out there. Uh, and so, you know, he'll he'll be the, the next, uh, you know, outer space, you know, far right candidate in the legislature. He'll be a headache for progressives, but an even bigger headache for Republican leadership in the state Senate. All well, three. the other thing. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was going to say all three do actually face Democratic opponents in the in November. So it's not a, a done deal for for a lot of times there. You see the race where whoever wins the runoff, especially in the Republican Party, just automatically wins because there's no Democratic opponent. But but neither all three of these do actually face Democratic opponents in. in well, actually, uh, in in the uh, Senate 17 uh, seat that uh, Ron Sharp lost, it's actually a libertarian, a libertarian that'll right, be on the right. ballot. Uh, uh, against uh, Shane Jett, but but you're right. I mean, the elections aren't over. They're still you know still November November third ahead. When we look at the other the other seats, I think it is important to note on that race with uh, in Senate District 43 with Paul Scott losing uh, by 238 votes. Again, very competitive race. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is, if we remember in June, he he just. He had 49.89% of the vote and then got pushed into a runoff to get beat. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what the runoff afforded was the opportunity for his opponent uh, to be able to continue to really, Jessica Garvin began to drive that wedge even deeper on some of the, you know, some of the, uh, uh, not only the out front issues, but some of the issues that were probably alluded to that got some traction, uh, some of the negative criticism. Uh, that Paul Scott had kind of built up, not only uh, among among legislators for some of his actions taking taking place uh, at the legislature, but back in the district as well as uh, as well as in his own uh, uh, business uh, that came under uh, some scrutiny and and um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of talk. So you know these races. I mean, there's there there's just never uh, uh, never a dull moment. I think when we look at jo- Joseph Silk's race, uh, I mean, his seat that he stepped away from to run for Congress in Senate District Five, uh, southeastern Oklahoma, that race went down to 22 votes, uh, mm-hmm. uh, separating the winner and the loser in the in the uh, Republican runoff, and a ch- and a challenge on irregularities that's still ongoing this week. So. Um, I mean, it's a it's a rough and tumble business. I think it's uh, uh, just it, some of it has always been the nature of political races. But I think as we as we kind of key in on these, we had some fascinating runoffs, probably more than usual. Uh, Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum wins his reelection for a second term in office. This comes despite criticism of his response to the killing of Terrence Crutcher and not pushing back against the president's rally in June. Ryan Bynum did had seven opponents in this race how did he avoid a runoff um, and that's uh i think that if we had not been in the middle of a pandemic 
and Greg Robinson had been able to run a more typical traditional campaign out on the doorsteps, uh, talking with voters and having those conversations, I think we would have seen a runoff. I, I really think it's just the, the context of the kind of campaign that you've got. It was a very short campaign. Um, and so the ability to get out and know people, introduce yourself, especially when you're running against somebody like G.T. Bynum, who's comes from one of the most well-established political families in the state, a well-known political commodity, well-financed. Um, you know, I, I would just say that you know, get to know the name Greg Robinson. He's going to be around a, a very long time. I think that he's a, a remarkable leader and we're going to, I think, see more from him. Um, you know, I think that Mayor Bynum may have won this outright without a runoff. But I do think that we're seeing the pinnacle of, of Mayor Bynum's political career. I mean, if you'll recall, whenever he was first elected, I mean, he was elected right around the same time that David Holt, mayor of Oklahoma City, was elected mayor here uh, in Oklahoma City. And we, I think we all three kind of talked about them as, as the, the rising stars uh, of, the, uh, of the political world in Oklahoma. They're savvy, young, cool mayors, made these efforts to transcend partisanship. Um, but Holt you know, certainly has some COVID battle scars, uh, but he still maintained that image of a nonpartisan operator. Uh, and where Bynum's weak response during Trump's embarrassing occupation of Tulsa has undermined his appeal in that regard. And so I think that maybe uh, Mayor Holt can be thankful that Trump didn't decide to make Oklahoma City ground zero for his uh, for his reelection kickoff. And he didn't face those choices. But, you know, Mayor Bynum's very weak response uh, to both the police killings and police um, uh, uh, misconduct in Tulsa uh, and his weak response and support of the president during during that re-election launch, I think that it it it, it has uh, had a huge effect on on his ability to be a political operator moving forward. So he may have won this race, but I think it came at a huge cost. And Neva, he only won by fifty two percent. And he says he's not going to run again. What do you think this means for him? Well, I mean, first of all, fifty two percent. Uh, when you're with talking, seven, as, as Ryan just said, seven opponents, seven opponents, you had a 34 percent turnout, which in, uh, you know, which uh, uh, was a couple of hundred thousand out of the couple of hundred thousand mm -hmm. registered voters. Not uh, not that bad, given as as we've talked about just the general, you know, general landscape and the world of covid that we're that we're uh, dealing with right now. But I think what uh, what we saw is clearly G.T. Bynum uh, is a political force. He comes from a, basically a, 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 a has a political pedigree uh, from from Tulsa, the city of Tulsa standpoint. I mean, with a great grandfather and a grandfather and a cousin, all all uh, having served as a uh, uh, mayor in the past. I mean, he is someone who, by his own admission, said that, look, I know I that uh, some of the things that have gone on have cost me political support. Uh, he's had to make the tough decisions. He's dealt with the, you know, like all all mayors and everyone in elective office right now, COVID nineteen, the pandemic. He's dealt with um, the uh, the the president's visit uh, earlier this year. All of those things, and yet he has shown the ability to uh, uh, to be able to lead and to uh, position himself very well uh, as the mayor of Tulsa. And I thought it was interesting. The New York Times uh, did a uh, a fairly lengthy article the Sunday before the Tuesday election, uh, basically kind of setting the stage saying that uh, basically in in the in the in Tulsa where race relations are raw that you had this white mayor feeling the heat and it was a real uh, it was a it was a real uh, kind of 
push, it appeared, uh, as you read it, to try to make this contrast between the community activists, late entry to the race, Greg Robinson, uh, to, uh, to, to Mayor Bynum. And I thought that uh, I thought it was fascinating that we had the Tulsa mayor's race uh, kind of on the national national uh, uh, board in terms of having that kind of focused coverage right before the election uh, in you know one of the uh, uh, you know one of the top newspapers in terms of uh, uh, in, in terms of its impact nationwide. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.